So the debate being uh, about the um, how local people who receive aid uh, perceive of of that enterprise, and and how the aid providers think of the people they are supposedly have come to help. And this presentation is part of a, a larger uh, work that is looking at uh, violence as a, a, a really daunting public health emergency. This violence is measured not only in terms of fatalities, but more importantly, in terms of the totality of mortality and morbidity um, and population health in general. And this can be more deadly in some situations uh, than, uh, like in South Sudan, than all the disease outbreaks combined in a given period. If you compare the fatalities uh, enumerated in a war zone for about a year or two and compared to the disease outbreaks and the people who died from these outbreaks in a similar year, you will find that people who died from war and related causes far outnumber uh, the, the, the number of people who have died because of, uh, because of disease. And so, um, uh, to rush quickly to what I'm thinking of in doing so is to say that uh, the same level of investments uh, in effort and finances and expertise that has been put in tackling disease uh, have not really uh, been uh, equaled by uh, measures in tackling war and its consequences. And so I wonder whether there cannot be more, if not at least equal uh, measure of commitment to tackling war and its cause and its consequences the same way that we have invested in tackling disease. And um, for example, in September of uh, this year, uh, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine used a, a very clever tool to estimate how many people died in South Sudan between December 2013 and August 2018. And they came up with a number, uh, close to half a million people died uh, during that period in the war in South Sudan, which broke out in, 20, in late 2013 and still ongoing, albeit some uh, peace uh, uh, agreements that have been signed. And in that period, uh, 400, uh, over 400,000 people died. But over 80% of these people uh, did not die of gun wounds, uh, but of the many war-related factors, including child malnutrition, uh, destruction of health facilities, displacement of health personnel, disruption of vaccination campaigns, and above all, the congestion related to the setup of internal displaced persons camps all across the country which then led to a gigantic breakdown of sanitation in this, on these sites, leading to outbreaks of many diseases such as cholera, uh, typhoid, and of course uh, malaria, given the, uh, the sanitation around the area where these people live. And South Sudan has produced more IDPs in the, in the period between 2013 and 2018 than any other conflict, except uh, for uh, for Yemen. Now, 
because of these IDPs living in such deplorable conditions, um, the, the death story, uh, the, the, the mortality in, in the, on those sites is absolutely horrendous. And so um, when you look at Ajit, uh, the town, um, I, I'm putting this map up and I'll come back to, to my thought in a little bit. But uh, uh, as we are talking about Jib in 1998, I wanted to point out its location, which is just uh, northeast of Wau, uh, that's Wau town, and just northeast of it, there, uh, about uh, 12 miles from the river, River Ju, um, is uh, the location where Ajib was. Like many other towns in South Sudan that were famine afflicted, they got supplies, relief aid from, from Kenya. So that's what I wanted to, to point out. But here is uh, a, a, a map showing even more closely uh, the location of Ajib in relation to the rest of South Sudan. And so that is uh, what used to be called Warab State. And so uh, Ajib is just to the southwest of, uh, of Warab State uh, right there. Uh, this map is also showing different grades of food insecurity. So you have the, the red is, uh, is, is the one that is emergency. Uh, the more maroon is definitely uh, famine where people are starving to death. But uh, the rest of the country is, this is a more recent map, uh, like 2017. But it's, 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 uh, it's definitely shown similar things that happened in the 1990s and early 2000s. But, um, but so what I wanted to do with the gym is uh, to look at, the, at it, uh, this regular village uh, on, the, on, the, on the U River uh, between Wau and Bogreal. But uh, about April and May of 1998, um, the situation changed in the year, where there had been a, a confluence of a variety of deadly uh, forces that then uh, pushed Egypt onto uh, the spotlight globally as a place where so many people were dying. And uh, what happened in Egypt was that there was a, the civil war between North and South was going on for a long time, since 1983. But then uh, one of the characteristics of conflict in South Sudan is that there are many layers below the national level conflict that usually are not so visible when we look at conflict. There are many layers, including the fracturing of the opposition, including ethnic conflicts that go on because of uh, competition over resources or because of lack of justice and people take revenge. And many of these conflicts at that level don't get noticed. Uh, in, uh, as the bigger civil war between North and South was facilitating everything. Uh, but these lower level, lower layers of the conflict are just as deadly, if not more. Uh, and and um, what happened in the year was that there was the split in the South Sudan opposition movement called the SPLA. And that split produced uh, uh, a, a rebel army called uh, SPLA United, Sudan People's Liberation Army United. Uh, the branch of that uh, group was led by a man called Carbino Bainimbol. Karbino Fahimbol had been the first, one of the first people who started the North-South War in Torit, I mean in, in, in Bor, in, in 1983. <coughs> and then he disagreed with the, with the leader of the SPLA at the time, John Garan, and he broke away. 
and forge alliances with uh, Khartoum, with uh, other militia groups in unity, including uh, uh, something called SSDF, South Sudan Defense Force, uh, led by Pauline Matip in unity state. And when they did this, they wreaked havoc in Gogria. Many people were displaced by Carabino's forces. Uh, property was destroyed by Carabino's forces. Cattle were uh, taken from people. Food was uh, taken from villages. And the villagers themselves were forced to carry this food to Gogria town, where Carabino had stationed himself. So that's one of the four major things that happened to affect Egypt, to turn it from being a, a regular village of a few hundred to being a, a, a town on a global spotlight. The other is uh, that in the, in the North-South War, the Sudanese army had started way back to recruit a group of tribal fighters called Murahilin from Western Sudan, from Darfur and Cordoba and deployed them uh, in South Sudan to destabilize what they saw as a support base for the SPLA. So the raiding had been a, a, a massive uh, uh, source of destabilization in Bahar Ghazal region. That particular year, in 1998, the Maralin went as far south as they had never been before. From around Wau, from Awil, from Babanusa, from Mehram, from uh, a, a Will North border, in, in, uh, and they went all the way down to Egypt, and people were displaced. So that was the second thing that happened. The third was that there was a, fa it was a drought. The year ending, the harvest year ending in, 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 in October, November 1997, had been a disaster. There was no harvest whatsoever. Then, of course, the fourth is the SPLA itself, the South's main movement, opposition movement against the North. They had been deployed in large numbers in, in that area to try to make plans to attack the garrison town of Wau. So when you have these four forces converging on Egypt, uh, the result was that uh, famine was triggered by this, uh, by this, uh, by this, by these events, and so uh, the basic, the basic livelihoods that local people uh, relied on uh, were uh, tampered with. Uh, that area is part of a of a complex of ways of life uh, that is uh, in Bahar and Apanai relying on four major pillars. The livelihoods of this area are built on four uh, major pillars. One is cattle herding, which uh, local people, the Dinka and the Nuer, think is the biggest and the most important resource. But in fact, the biggest is farming. So you have cattle herding, you have low, uh, very limited uh, uh, farming where people uh, uh, grow sorghum or maize, uh, sesame, <coughs> and a variety of uh, vegetables as the key element of survival. And then you have trading, 
number of people from these communities engage in trade. Such that when your harvest has fallen short of your needs, you can sell a cow and you go to Wow, you go to Malakar, you go to Bantu, you go to Awil, and you can buy grain. Then the fourth one is uh, fishing. If you live close to rivers, if you don't have access to rivers, you have wild foods and a number of uh, fruits uh, from the wild that you can collect. So the, the livelihood of people living in Egypt, like the rest of that entire uh, uh, plain of northern Bahagazal and, and western Upper Nile, uh, relied on these four uh, pillars. Now, these pillars were completely uh, disabled by this confluence of these four uh, forces that converge on Egypt. And so, um, the only thing that was left now, and perhaps you can say that humanitarian aid has become the fourth, the fifth pillar, pillar of survival in South Sudan, beginning in those in that period. Uh, and so, the only thing that people had left was to flock to relief centers, uh, <coughs> um, and there were quite a number of them all across South Sudan. There was Nasser in Afanai. There was. Uh, these were areas that the SPLA had taken control of. So uh, when in 1991 the Operation Lifeline Sudan was set up, it was these locations that uh, aid was delivered to from northern Kenya, a town called Lokichoke. And it was usually delivered by, by, by air because roads were bad, but more importantly they were insecure. So the only way to access the interior of South Sudan was to fly food aid into these areas, uh, a process that became, that made OLS, up to that time it ended, um, the world's largest humanitarian operation since the end of the Second World War, with up to $3.7 billion spent uh, on this operation. And um, in order to, to relief, uh, to give, offer relief to people who are affected, such as in Egypt, um, NGOs had to go and set themselves up there. And the United Nations World Food Program would then uh, drop food aid from the air. And the local NGOs plus World Food Program staff who would then fly into the air in a smaller plane because the the idea was that you would have food dropped from big planes, Hercules and Illusion and all these Russian or American planes, then the staff would then fly in a, in a smaller plane so that they can go and distribute and, and oversee uh, the, the distribution of food aid at those places. Now, when, by the time the, so I said that the famine began in, 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 May, in April, May, uh, 1998, by the time it was relatively ended with a new harvest in October, in, in September, October of that year, 60,000 people had perished in, in northern Bahagazar. Only in, during that short period, 60,000 people had died, uh, mainly of uh, violence, but more so. I mean, uh, many of the consequences of violence, which included uh, displacement of people and, 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 uh, and malnutrition that had afflicted so many people. So, what happened was that the, the relief centers 
became the only way for people to survive. So well, they, they flocked to the relief centers from very far away places. And they would walk uh, for days and days on end. And uh, while they're walking, they obviously they have exhausted uh, whatever little energy they have. A lot of times entire families move with mothers carrying their children on their uh, shoulders, with uh, fathers carrying whatever little utensils uh, the family might have. By the time they arrive in Nigeria, some three, four, five, seven days later, the, many of them simply drop dead on arrival. Um, and, 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 and as a result, the relief centers became a magnet for some of the worst cases in the country, whether it was disease or was malnutrition or was simply starvation, some of the worst cases in all over the country were now walking to the relief centers. And um, on arrival at the relief center, it was not that there was going to be food instantly as they arrived. Uh, a lot of times there was food, but it was maize and ground maize given to these starving people. So occasionally there might be, a, there might be a, a, a feeding center for kids where you have soft food, uh, porridge and stuff, uh, fortified biscuits that will be given to these children, but adults cannot make it. But even the children who are being fed often still die first because if the electrolytes are just uh, so badly messed up, no matter how much you feed them, it is very difficult to rescue them with such an emergency um, uh, uh, program. Unless they have been, uh, they have arrived in the, in, in the relief center when they were still quite strong so that if you feed them, they can survive. But if they have reached a level where, uh, uh, which a lot of people did on their journeys so that when they arrive, you feed them, and in fact, the, the immediate feeding also end up, um, they, sometimes they can be thirsty, and so ingesting a lot of food or drinking a lot of water when on arrival, if they are not supervised, that act alone kills them. And um, so many people. There is now a, an entire genre of songs and poetry being created in, in at least in Dinka language, which is the language that I speak, describing how death became ordinary. How people simply became numbed to the emotions that would otherwise uh, arise from seeing so much death. And um, some of the signs that people have become numb to death is that they were saying, don't bury the dead. There is a myth about this. That if you bury famine people, people who died of starvation, there is a, a kind of a superstition about it. That you, that you will have buried hunger in your land. That it will never go away. It will be recurrent year after year. So what you have to do is let the war debt, I mean the, the, the famine debt, be eaten by vultures and by wild animals. Hence the word, the Dinka word for a starved person 
is muet, and muet means being eaten by 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 prey by birds of prey. So the person who dies from starvation cannot be simply described as dead person. It has to be described as somebody who has been muet. And 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 you wonder about this whether it is really about that myth that let so many people drop dead and not be buried, or was it something else? Perhaps lack of energy. Nobody has the capacity to dig the ground. And the emotions also, the, the kinds of mourning, the kinds of even before your loved one died, there are some rituals that are often followed, um, which in this case would not be followed because the circumstances are such, it's totally different. And, um, and such uh, songs and poetry speak of the times when we used to be a dignified people and which we no longer are. Uh, because if you cannot nurse your sick people, you cannot properly bury your, your dead, you can no longer even uh, rally enough people in the community to save their loved ones, because obviously there are some people who still have possessions. Uh, and in all the old days, such a thing would not be allowed. Relatives would be required, even by a chief court, to give a milk cow to their relatives who are nothing for the period of when there is food deficit until the next harvest and then you can get, get, take the cow back. These sort of things were suspended on the whole. And so this poetry is talking about the times when we used to be people, to be dignified, to be somebody. And now, uh, because of the confluence of these tragic experiences, and because death has become so common, um, who are we even to speak in, confront, in confronting the rest of the world about our experience? And in the same way, of course, there is also song about famine relief, about Operation Lifeline Sudan, about the relief that was being brought. Uh, there is a song about uh, the, 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 the manner in which people actually die. And there is a song about those people who have given up their traditions and their basic uh, values and move into UN camps. Uh, there are people who have, there's a song about how uh, this, kind of, uh, this kind of death we've never seen before. Um, so um, I took this picture actually. And uh, uh, not all the pictures I'm showing I have taken, but this one. I heard it with my own ears, with the mother saying, let's walk to behind the bush, which had become the grave, because you don't bury it. So let's walk to the other side of the bush while you still have some energy. Because if you die here, I will not be able to carry you to the back of the bush. And even those people who are brave enough to defy the superstition and bury their dead can only bury them in such shallow graves that sometimes the graves are aided by animals, by wild animals. 
And by the way, animals also become uh, accustomed to human flesh. Such that animals such as hyena that never roamed in daytime were now out with the capacity to attack human beings, especially children, because they had tasted human flesh and had become accustomed to eating human flesh. That if they see a person walking, especially a weak person, that look like they are not walking uh, steadily, uh, they can track this person into the bush and perhaps uh, even attempt to attack, to attack this kind of person. Um, I wanted to come back to speaking about why, what happened, what went wrong. There was a time when uh, a Dinka or a Nuer society will say that women and children are the center of social organizing. Everything that you do is always around making sure that children and women are okay. So what happened uh, to, this, to this idea to the point where even those communities that, that family, those families that still had some resources, perhaps out of fear that if they share their resources they will also run out, have decided not to practice the same values of sharing that used to be done in the past to the point where sometimes people can be compelled. By, by law to give. Um, this, this, this now were known at, in some places as uh, famine courts. Courts where a, a family <coughs> member can go to the chief and say, my children are starving, my brother has cows, would you please pressure him to give one cow to my children so that they can survive? And the law would be uh, to uphold that idea that family members are obligated. Uh, to come to the rescue of their loved ones. <coughs> so what happened was that indeed the level of desperation had become that severe. Uh, for example, you, you bring relief, relief and it is all these uh, maize grains that require energy to pound. And nobody had energy to pound maize. And maize is not even like sorghum. Sorghum is a much softer grain that a lady, even a young child, can take it and put it in a mortar and can pound the can pound the maize into flour. But I mean the the sorghum into flour. But maize is a different kind of animal. In fact, in throughout the ages in Dinka and Nuer, when you grow maize, you didn't grow maize in order to turn it into flour. You grow maize and then you harvest it early when it's still soft. You roast it and eat it. That's it. But this maize that is coming from the United States in sacks and sacks after sacks after sacks, nobody knew how to, to prepare it. You can boil them, but starving people can eat boiled maize. So um, that's what went wrong. Um, and when it is dropped from the air, um, people rush to it to try to, for everyone to try to grab um, a piece of a grain sack or, and people, there was another song that said, when people rush to the distribution side the way you see in this picture, the song says, it's a race no one will ever win. Because you might actually make it to the top of the line and you are given a, a sack of grain, and then when you leave the distribution site, the soldiers 
the SPLA will say, no, no, not so fast. Because you have to contribute to the revolution. And the best way for you to contribute to the revolution is to give up part of your, uh, a part of your, of your grain sack. So usually food is distributed in, uh, in, in, in front of everybody, but there was always a secondary distribution. Where every family who has received the sack has to deposit it somewhere. And then when the, when the Hawaiian, the, the, uh, the foreigners have left, the distribution in earnest will now take place. Not the one that uh, has been subject to all kinds of uh, modern thinking like gender considerations and all this. But as I said, even what went wrong is that even when adults have starved themselves in order to feed their children, the children still die first. This is what went wrong. And, and, and perhaps there can be something to be said about uh, the reconfiguration of gender relations, the idea that women and children are no longer the center of social organizing, and what is the new thing now is how much as a citizen are you contributing to the revolution? I, I, have, I have done work on, 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 on that line of thinking uh, separately about reproductive health and about childbirth and sexuality, in which the SPLA has required people to contribute to the revolution through their wombs. Uh, by raising the nation while it is being decimated by war. But, um, so as I said, the food distribution itself is subject to all kinds of games, uh, all kinds of uh, play with words. Uh, you know, there has to be equity in access to aid, and if that equity is to be kept in mind, then women should come first, children to come first, and then when they, when they have been given, they are then uh, behind the bush, they are told to go and deposit it somewhere so that it can be redistributed later. In this, there are uh, classes of people who can have access to this aid. So that is why you have a lot of people who cheat the system and who have also become averse to the um, to the societal norms that describe them as hungry people, as, uh, as, as, as bad people. They, 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 people will talk about the, the people who cheat, but, they, but the, those who cheat don't care anymore. So it will continue uh, to be a hierarchical system of distribution. So even as you have uh, broad aid, even as you have uh, brought NGOs to try to treat the sick and uh, therapeutic feeding places and all these, 60,000 people still die in Nigeria and in the, in the surrounding areas, in, in, in northern Bahrizal. And pictures from such sites will be taken to raise more money in the global north so that more aid can be supplied. And it just leaves people thinking about um, what is it really that drives the global north to try to intervene in places so far away from them? Food will be dropped from the sky. Another song is made about this bird of steel that um, cracks food and then the next day it cracks bombs because 
there are, along with these humanitarian aid deliveries, there is also area bombardment by Sudanese state. So people could not distinguish between which plane brings food and which plane drops bombs on us. And a great deal of, uh, of poetry is produced uh, as a, uh, uh, describing all these contradictions. Um, then you have uh, upper-bodied men who will collect that food that was being dropped all over the place and they will collect it to the point where they, they will also have a cut after they have collected uh, the grain. So already it's, it's chipping away the amount of food that was calculated to try to address the hunger of so many people. To the point where then women become porters themselves, something that would normally not be allowed. Uh, where women, uh, this, the, lifting these heavy things should not have been a women's job. And then it's all uh, brought to one location where the distribution will take place the next day. The blue bags uh, in the back are uh, legumes and uh, um, so you have maize and then you have uh, beans and, and, and lentils. Uh, things, foods that are quite nutritious but takes a long time to prepare, uh, especially if you are going to mix uh, beans and, 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 and maize. And so once all of that has been compiled in one place, then the aid workers will now come in a separate plane uh, the next day or uh, some, sometime around that time to come and distribute. And, and, uh, and so when they arrive, um, the distribution will not even take place for days and you are organizing the system of distribution. You are listing the families, you are following the kinship system, and you are putting together lists of chiefs and community leaders who will then receive on behalf of their people, and then these people will then go and distribute it to the women and, and children. There is a system that says uh, women must be the first to be given. And when the women are given first, uh, the men complain, saying that women, are being given and it's not the women who makes decisions generally in that society about distribution of such resources. And so the humanitarian agencies insisting that women be uh, the targeted for, for, for to receive the aid means that you are really asking the community to revise and rethink the way decisions are made. So, um, is it that uh, women have to be given because they are more vulnerable in this situation? Or is it uh, to be given to men because they are normally the decision makers according to the way that society uh, organizes itself? Um, one of the key consequences of uh, that debate is that uh, one chief came to the aid workers and said, when you have gone, when you have delivered your food and you've gone away, and you have distributed it the way you have distributed it, and you have singled out certain people as most vulnerable and be given, uh, are you going to put these people on the plane with you and go back? Or are they going to remain members of our society? In which case, 
you will have stigmatized a group of people in the eyes of the entire community as most vulnerable, something that nobody wants to admit to in public anyway. Like if you go around and ask people if you are poor in order to assess whether they are vulnerable and whether they are eligible for food, obviously you put people in, in, in crisis there in thinking whether should I admit in public that I'm a poor person, which will then pay my image. Or should I say, no, no, I'm not poor, in which case I will not get aid. So all these discussions were triggered by the way aid um, was, uh, was now being distributed according to uh, norms of um, uh, brought by traditions where the aid comes from. So which takes me back now to my original question about what is it that drives humanitarian interventions. To me, it seems like behind this whole idea that United States Agency for International Development, United Kingdom's Department for International Development, Norwegian Development Aid, all these organizations that are <coughs> collecting money from their taxpayers and putting millions of, of monies into operations are taking off from the point of welfare state, uh, a global northern welfare system that says when some of us are incapable of sustaining themselves, it is the obligation of the rest of us to come to their rescue. This is uh, something rooted in the history of Europe. It, is, it goes back to the days when, um, perhaps beginning with, this, with the, the end of the First World War and the, U, and the UK's involvement in Russia to aid the, the, the suffering. Or the idea of uh, Christian ideas, uh, Protestant ideas that uh, we have an obligation to humanity. And those of us who are less fortunate must benefit from our largesse. So that is what drives interventions. Ideally, that is what you think drives the interventions in the South. Now, when you go there, are you, obviously you are not going to just go and dump food and go. You're going to want to follow the same system where you in interrogate and investigate that somebody is indeed eligible from the point of view of need. And so if you pick up what, uh, the, the American welfare system does. Uh, I used to translate on the phone for immigrants. And uh, in order for you to qualify for Medicare, uh, to qualify for food stamps, there is a long list of questions that you have to be asked. And I'm translating for a Syrian woman or an Iraqi woman or a Sudanese woman who is being asked questions that she thinks are completely unrelated to her need for welfare. And the whole interrogation becomes humiliating to her. And she says, actually, I don't need it. I will, I will, it's OK, I will stop. So when you pick the system that drives your donations and your, your intervention methods, and you want to implement your intervention with the same philosophy in mind, what happens is that you get into a situation where people have to ask themselves, is being fed 
by strangers more undignified than starving. And some people would say, yes, we have never been fed by strangers. People who don't know our names, people whom we don't know, people we will not reciprocate to. Um, so it, it, this, the, the way aid is delivered and distributed has put people in that kind of thinking about the value of humanitarian aid, even if it is here to rescue people's lives, and indeed has rescued many lives, uh, whether it is worth the humiliation. And so, obviously there are people who are going to come up with a way, with a middle way. Some individual will say, oh, but these are foreigners, they don't even know me, they don't know my ancestors, they don't know my name, they don't know my family, so I cannot be dishonored in front of people who cannot then go around and find out who I am. So it's okay. I can declare poverty in front of them. In fact, I can inflate poverty and say, yes, food, more food, please. Because I cannot be dishonored in front of foreigners. And some people will survive that way. There are people who will say, no, it's not worth it. And then, obviously, there is a philosophical, much more important question about uh, the debate that was going on in the 90s, which is whether food aid actually does harm than the few people that it saves. Does harm in, in the sense that um, it becomes an alibi for global northern countries not seeking political solutions to that which caused famine to begin with. Whether it is an alibi for local leaders in Africa who have the responsibility for the welfare of their own people and yet have relinquished their responsibility. Whether it causes aid recipients to become somewhat dependent on aid when in fact they have other mechanisms that they could have used to survive. Whether in the future it will lead to an erosion of those survival mechanisms. And all these questions have been asked to the, to the effect that you can say, have we reached a moment in human history where humanitarian aid from Europe and North America and Australia and Japan has run its course and should be resolved? It's a gray area where if you were a nurse or a nutritionist, from Europe, and you're seeing a child in Tanzania struggle, they, of course, the, the inclination is first to go and rescue that person. So is the number of few people that we save through humanitarian intervention worth the fight, even if the consequences of it is an erosion of the entire system of survival? Or can anyone say, this is just too much for us. No politician in Europe would say that, because then, of course, there are the activists and the academics and the human rights people who will say, you can't just sit here and watch people starve in another country. And then, if you, a politician, and you decide you're going to intervene, which way are you going to do it? You're going to do it in the way that is most rewarding 
when the elections come. And so the philosophy that drives it will be a philosophy that is geared toward sustaining votes during the next elections. And so the focus for humanitarian interventions and for um, for uh, ending famine should now folk be, be, be life should be more on the local leaders whose competition for public office, as we have seen in South Sudan, the biggest driver of conflict in South Sudan is politicians wanting to maintain public office or to have access to it. Whether uh, bringing aid has given them an alibi, and whether aid itself has become a kind of a bad aid. Down the aid, and then when you are questioned, you say, what else can I do? I've given aid. When in fact, the focus should be the solution, the resolution of some of the drivers of conflict. Obviously, there are uh, things that might be beyond the reach of the politicians in Europe, including drought, and the global, global warming now, and climate change has become even more a major driver in, uh, in, in some of these conflicts. Not just in terms of food deficit uh, as a result of drought or flooding, but also in terms of conflict, because people the diminishing resources lead to more conflicts, and conflict leads to families. So th those are things that the global community must really have a way to debate collectively as a human issue, rather than a problem of uh, given countries in Africa or in the global south. So um, that's, that's all I, I wanted to say. and, and uh, perhaps uh, other ideas that I have not been able to to to, uh, to spell out will be triggered by your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you.